Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Conversations. Today's guest is Krista Bear. She is the author of Beautiful Badass, and she is a career coach, a speaker. She's so inspiring. We covered a lot of ground today, guys. So we talked about anxiety, depression, PTSD, abuse, SPD, which is sensory processing disorder. I had never heard of this. She really covered a lot with me, and it's not sad or depressing. It's all about coping and ways to make yourself feel better and deal with life, honestly. So um, yeah, I'm really anxious for you guys to hear it. If you'd like to follow me on social media, I am on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok under Donversations Podcast. And if you'd like to reach out to me, I would love to hear from you. If you want to be on the show or just give me some feedback, you can find me at Donversations at gmail.com. So yeah, guys, I'm super anxious for you to hear this one. And here we go. I forgot to add that she is my motivational person of the month for September. So um, yes, she deserved it a million percent. Anyway, here we go. Krista? Yes, I'm here. All right. So let's just, let's just start talking about anxiety. Uh, yes. Oh, my old friend, anxiety. Yes. So um, have you always dealt with it or is it something that just developed like in junior high? You know, I, I think I've always had some level of anxiety from a young age. Um, it's interesting because there's a lot of reasons for it, right? Like I've experienced childhood trauma, so that's in there. But also I've recently found out that uh, I have sensory processing disorder and one of, so basically, are you familiar with sensory processing disorder? No. So essentially like a great way to describe it that I read that I really liked is that imagine that all of your senses have dials on them. And if you have sensory processing disorder, your dials on various senses are either turned up really, really high or your dial is turned down really, really low. Um, for me, my senses that are affected, my dial is turned up really, really high. And so, you know, when someone else, let's say, for example, hears a, a sound like some music or um, a crowd and they may hear it on a scale of one to 10, they're hearing it like a level five. And so to them, it's manageable. Whereas I may be, my senses may be interpreting that same level of noise at like a nine or a 10. And so to me, it seems extremely loud and it's very overwhelming to the sensory systems and it can cause nervous system dysregulation and things like that. So, you know, now that I'm finding out about this sensory processing disorder that I've had this my whole life, I'm also looking back at my anxiety and realizing like, oh, here's a new way that this clicks in and makes a lot of sense because so much of the time I'm overwhelmed, my, like my physical body, my nervous system is overwhelmed by the sensory input that I'm taking in if I am not in control of, of the sensory stimulus in my environment. And so like that comes with a high level of anxiety too, because like your body doesn't understand, it's just getting flooded with all this information, right? All the stimulus. Oh my gosh. So who do you even go to, to get that diagnosis? 
Yeah, th that's a great question. I mean, there are people that specialize in this, although it's a newer thing. So originally sensory processing disorder was thought to be just a part of autism. So if you were on the autism spectrum, it was assumed that like this was always related to um, autism. But now they're starting to say it can be a separate diagnosis. Um, and so there's an organization in Denver, which is where I got diagnosed, it's called Star Institute. And they specialize in sensory issues and it's a nonprofit organization. And I actually, how I first learned about all this was um, a TEDx talk. So I was at TEDx Mile High and I heard the director of the Star Institute talking about sensory processing disorder and she was giving several case studies. And as I was listening, I kept thinking to myself like, hmm, these examples <laughs> sound really familiar. I was like, yeah, I can relate to that and I can relate to that and I can relate to that. And so that's when I started looking into it more, right? Because I was just like, huh, that's weird. I can relate to all these things and then ended up having a consultation and doing some testing with uh, with their occupational therapy group there. Huh. So what what sense for you is the the most that you feel like you, triggers you the most? Is it your hearing? Yeah, yeah. Hearing is a sound is a big one for me, um, but also smell. Like, yeah, I experience smells in a very intense way. You know, it's funny and like I've always been this way. I, I will notice something and I'm like, someone's smoking nearby, and you start looking around and you don't see anyone who's smoking. And then, you know, I, I'll keep looking and I'll see someone smoking like a block or two away. And I'm like, there they are. And people will say, you can't smell that from here. And I'm like, yes, I can. I know it's like super weird, but yeah. So so for me, it's, it's a lot of, of sound and smell is a big one for me, as well as um, like vision is impacted and touch um, and vestibular, which is like your balance. Gosh. Well, I feel like that for sure. But my eyes are awful. Like I've been in contacts and glasses since third grade. So I felt like maybe my other senses were heightened because of that. I, I, I just always thought that, okay, my, my other senses are um, overcompensating, but I've always hated loud noises. Like when people open champagne and stuff, I always plug my ears and I'm not a huge fan of fireworks for that reason. I like looking at them, but I don't like hearing them. Yeah. I mean, you could have some sensory sensitivity for sound, absolutely. Whether or not it's sensory processing disorder, I don't know. But, you know, and if you have sensory processing disorder, it doesn't have to be all of your senses. It could be just one or yeah. it could be a couple or it could be all. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. Absolutely. Like fireworks. Yeah. Really loud noises, um, you know, concerts and stuff like I enjoy live music very much, but I tend to enjoy um, the types of music that I listen to live tend to be, you know, not like loud rock necessarily. Um, right. Although I can occasionally enjoy like a concert where it is more rock, um, but I prepare myself for that, right? Like I have to know it's coming and I have to like know the music and I wear earplugs at the concert and, and I prepare myself for that. And then usually afterwards, I have a little bit of a period of like needing some downtime and some rest time to recover. Mm. So you think that that diagnosis is what played into a lot of the anxiety that you dealt with growing up? Yeah, it was definitely a factor because so much of the world was overstimulating for me um, in a variety of ways, but also, you know, no one knew this was a thing when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s. And so what I would 
what I was told by the adults around me was, oh, stop. It's not that, it's not that loud. It's not that bright, you know, um, stop. Oh, you're overreacting. Stop being a princess. I heard that one a lot. Stop being a princess. And so my own experience of my senses, I was told by other people was incorrect. And then I think that creates anxiety too. You know, when you are experiencing something one way and people are telling you your experience of the world and your experience of yourself is incorrect, I think that creates anxiety, creates confusion. And there's, you know, then you have misalignment inside and, and the world suddenly seems like a lot more threatening and scary place when you feel like people are consistently telling you that what you notice is not correct. And so you just don't know what to think about the world. That is so sad. That's like really sad that, you know, especially the younger you are, you, you know, where you're just your parents, whatever they say is so meaningful or your grand, you know, everybody that you're surrounded by. So you really take it to heart if they're like, what are you talking about? Everything's fine. You're overreacting. It's like, well, no, <laughs> I just don't like it. That's really, that's sad. I'm sure it does affect the self-esteem too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it was really fascinating to me when I had my consultation with the occupational therapist, because you know, she asked me a lot of questions about my early childhood. And, you know, I started to realize and notice as I was talking with her in the consultation, just how much that had happened to me. And, and some of the signs that they really look for too, when you have sensory processing disorder is that like you were considered to be a fussy baby. Um, and right. The reason you were fussy is because you were sensory overloaded. Yeah. Yep. Overload a lot of the time. But I was absolutely, you know, a fussy baby and didn't sleep well through the night and, um, you know, just had a lot of things from a very young age that my mom would comment on. And she would tell me as I got older and as I was growing up and even as an adult, you know, my mom would say like, oh, you were always, you know, kind of unusual in these ways. And and oh, now I find out those are the exact ways that are like, oh, that was because of the sensory issues. When how long ago was it? I know you said how you found out, but how long ago was that, that you got the diagnosis? So this was like November of 2021. Okay. So that probably checked a lot of boxes for you where you're like, well, that makes sense. So is it even anxiety then? Is it considered the same? Um, well, I think that it creates anxiety. If you have some okay. processing disorder, it can create anxiety. And, and I'm sure that I have anxiety on my own. I mean, I've also been diagnosed with complex PTSD, which is an anxiety disorder as well. And so, you know, I've got, I come by anxiety, honestly, I guess, as they say, you know, I've got plenty yeah. of it in my world. Wow. So, and that started when you were little? Yes. Did you, did you have like something traumatic happen or it just was incidences that kept piling on each other? There were multiple incidences. So, you know, typically the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD is that PTSD is typically um, one traumatic event and it stems from like having one traumatic event. And typically when we use the word traumatic event in the context of PTSD, it's, it's almost always, it's a life-threatening event, right? So it's not perceived, mm -hmm. um, in many cases, it's not like I perceived there was danger and it wasn't really there. It's like, there was actually like some kind of, you know, a soldier in a war zone or sure. someone in a car accident or, you know, a woman who was attacked or something like that, you know? So there really was a life-threatening element to it. And what they find with complex PTSD 
is that that diagnosis is slightly different and it comes from basically when someone is trapped in a situation where the trauma is consistent and recurring and they cannot get out there's no immediate escape from the trauma or you know even in the near future there's not an escape from the trauma it's just that's the that's the sort of day-to-day experiences you know to have that feeling that you know that life or death feeling but it's consistent and you're experiencing it daily or almost every day like domestic violence or something where Correct. yeah okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Domestic violence is a great example of that. So yes, exactly. So how do you, or how have you managed your anxiety? I mean, do you, um, turn to medication or were you trying to avoid using medication? I have had medication before, and I will tell you that I feel like for me, it hasn't really been that helpful. Um, you know, off and on the first time. So I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was, I think about eight years old. And this was in the early 80s. And I was actually prescribed antidepressants, which they were like brand new on the scene at this time. Oh, my Uh, God. They didn't know (laughs) that much about them, like they were just coming out. And, uh, you know, so they had given me antidepressants when I was eight years old. And um, when I started showing like some really severe symptoms of anxiety and and it didn't really help me that much. so, you know, off and on through the years, there were other periods of times where maybe my symptoms were a little bit stronger and a doctor would say, well, here's, you know, let's try this other medication or let's try this other medication. And, and a couple of times I tried different ones, but I just never really felt like that was an effective solution for me. I remember the support was very minimal at that time. I mean, um, I was having night terrors was was really the thing that got me to the psychiatrist's office that you know got my mom to take me in uh, because i would wake up screaming uh, uh, most nights in the middle of the night and and obviously that was very upsetting and disturbing to you know everyone in the household but also at that time in my life um i also had a sti a sexually transmitted infection so i was eight years old so, you know, the implications of that are, are fairly obvious, right? But at that time, this was not something that people really talked about or addressed. So despite the fact that I presented with night terrors and a sexually transmitted infection, um, not much was done other than putting me on antidepressants at that time. I mean, there really wasn't a lot of re- support that I received. And then as I started to get older, um, there was more support like counseling. So do you, um, did you stick with therapy? Yeah, I've, I've had lots of therapy off and on throughout my life, more on than off. And I absolutely have, have found it to be, be helpful. I've Better. had ther- therapists that, that were more helpful for me than others, um, you know, t- modalities of therapy that were more helpful than me than others. But for me, really taking charge and managing my mental health that's been just a piece of it, right? Like the therapy angle has just been one piece of what that's looked like for me. What other components are there? Like, do you meditate? I do meditate. Yeah, actually, I meditate every day. And I teach meditation classes for women. And what I love about it is, you know, I was introduced to the idea of meditation many years ago by a therapist, but I found it very difficult for me sort of that sitting still and being in the stillness and clearing your mind style of meditation um, was very difficult for me. And 
eventually I found this form of meditation that is done to music and it's a movement based meditation. And so it's not about sitting completely still or clearing your mind, right? Like you can just focus on the movement that you're doing as part of the meditation. Um, it's not a crazy all over the place movement. It's a very slow, intentional focused movement. But again, you know, instead of thinking, okay, clear your mind, don't think of anything. It's just like, oh, just focus on this movement and focus on the feeling that I, the feelings that I notice, the sensations that I notice in my body during this movement. And because the meditation is done to music, you know, again, that gives you something else to focus on. And so, you know, that was a game changer for me learning there's different styles of meditation. So anyone who's listening, if you're like thinking, oh yeah, I can't meditate. I've, I've tried that because the, the sit still clear your mind doesn't work for you. Keep searching. There's other types out there <laughs> and you may find one that works for you. But I did do an episode where there was a lady that did grief yoga and same kind of idea where you're doing slow movements, but you're just letting the feelings process as you do that and you work through them. You know, you don't push them down because that's they'll come back up. <laughs> they don't go away. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. So you teach it. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Good for you for turning it around, you know, taking something that was beneficial for you and then showing it to others. What's the clientele like? Is it all ages? Um, you know, for the classes that I teach, it's typically adult women. And really, so the meditation that I teach, it's part of a body of work called the Art of Feminine Presence. And the easiest way to describe what that body of work is, is that it's a it's primarily somatic, which means in the body experiences of like mindfulness and being present to ourselves, but but in a physical way. So it's not really a thought focused um, series of practices. It's more of a body focused series of practices. It's really tuning into our bodies, being present in our bodies. A lot of a lot of the practices in that work revolve around, we have an in the box. What does it feel like when I walk this way? And then what does it feel like in your body? What are you experiencing in your body? And so it's very body-based. Hmm. Okay. So meditation and mm -hmm. um, some therapy, what else do you do to get through it? I mean, groups, I found a lot of help from support groups, maybe even more than you know, one-on-one -on -one therapy that I've had. And so I've been involved in a variety of different support groups over the years. I've, um, you know, Allen on family groups is one area that has really helped me and is widely available support for families of alcoholics. And that one has been great for me as well as I've done some sexual assault survivor groups. And those have also been really, really powerful and impactful for me. You've really been through a lot. That's yes. a lot. That's a lot. Um, I commend you for doing what you can to get past it because <clears throat> that sounds really traumatic. Thank you. Do you uh, like to read books? I do. I, I love to read. Yeah. In fact, growing up, I was I just devoured books. I, I was such an introvert. And I think because of the sensory issues now looking back, right, because of the sensory issues and and uh, because of the trauma, you know, I didn't necessarily have a lot of friends. I had a few friends, but but not a lot of friends. And so books were really my my primary escape. And you could find me 
usually sitting someplace reading. Yeah, I love to read too. It's it's just so good to escape like that. No matter what you're reading, it's just you kind of disappear for a minute. I love that. Um, so do you live uh, out in nature? Like, do you live, are you in Colorado? Yeah, I live in Colorado. So do you go like out into the mountains? Do you like to hike and just spend time out in nature like that? You know, I absolutely love spending time outside, but I'm not your quintessential like Colorado girl. <laughs> in, in the sense that, like I don't, I've never been skiing in my life. Um, I, you know, even though I grew up here primarily, but I grew up in poverty. So, you know, skiing is, is not a poor person sport. Um, so I've never been, <laughs> I live in Colorado, I've never been skiing. Um, I'm not a big hiker or mountain biker or anything like that, but I do love being outside. But for me, that looks more like leisurely walks or, um, you know, riding my bicycle around town kind of a thing. Yeah. But I absolutely love, love, love going up to Estes Park. It's one of my favorite places in the whole world up in the mountains. Um, it's, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park is located in Estes Park. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm less of like a hiker in the sense of being really sporty about it and more like park me in a cabin next to a river in Rocky Mountain National Park and I will just be blissed out beyond belief. A million percent. You're my kind of girl. That's how I am. Colorado's beautiful. It's so beautiful, but you know, it's also the elevation is so high that you know, it can it's it can be hard to exercise here and I have asthma. And so, you know, I find I have to really watch myself when I go up to higher elevations at how much exercise that I'm getting that I don't trigger an asthma attack. Yeah. So I'm looking for advice. If if um, someone close to you is actually having not necessarily a full-fledged panic attack, but really high anxiety, are there key things that you should say to that person or should not say to that person to help help them? That's such a great question. And I appreciate that you're, you know, even thinking about this, because I think there's a couple of things when someone is experiencing a panic attack or really high anxiety or depression or any kind of mental health issue, some sort of general tips that I think almost always apply is first of all, um, when someone is really in it, sometimes it is difficult to think straight for that person. And it's it can be at times difficult to respond. So instead of coming at them and expecting them to give you a bunch of answers to questions that may not always be helpful. So sometimes just letting them know that you're thinking about them in a way that does not require a response from them can be really, really supportive because it can help anchor them in the present to know that you're there. But if you're not, if you know, if you're asking them a bunch of questions that require a response and they're struggling to, you know, mentally understand those questions and formulate their thoughts, it, it can send someone further into depression or anxiety. And so I think just saying like, you know, sometimes it can be, if you happen to be physically near them, just saying like, I'm right here with you. There's nothing you need to do for me right now. Just know that I'm here with you. And just being physically present can be incredibly grounding to someone who might be experiencing a panic attack or some anxiety or depression. And if you are not physically in the room with them, you know, a, a vocal or text version of that, you know, I am here for you and with you. And if you're not requiring a response from them, sometimes that can be incredibly supportive. Okay.
yeah, I feel like for me, my problem is that I want to fix things. And mm-hmm. so um, when somebody seems like they're having irrational thoughts to me, they're irrational. It's me like wanting to talk them off the ledge, talk them down. Like, no, 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 don't think like that. That's not what's happening. Everything's fine. Like, and that's, I don't want to be the one that says all the dumb stuff. <laughs> right, right. I don't want to be the one that's saying something where they're like, that's not helpful. Well, <laughs> and if, if, if someone's in a situation that their, you know, stress response is triggered, their, their fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response is triggered, you know, and you're saying everything is fine. Like that's, yeah, that really isn't always helpful, even though the intention is to be helpful because for them, that's not true. They are not fine inside. So, you know, the outside may be fine, but they they are not fine. Okay. That makes, fine. that makes perfect sense. I've never thought about it like that. Cause to me, it's everything that's on the outside, you know, whatever they're looking at, if it's all calm, then they should be fine. But no, it's internal. That makes total sense. Well, and they show like, there's this great book called the body keeps the score and it's, um, written about PTSD and they, within this book, there's a lot of references to studies and research that's been done. And there's actual pictures in the book of brain scans of people with PTSD. So someone with PTSD, when they go into a flashback and they're triggered, they are transported back to the moment of the trauma. And the scans in this book, the brain scans show the brain activity that's happening when someone is in a flashback actively, when someone who has PTSD is in a flashback, like their brain is not functioning in a typical way that you and I would experience just as we go about our day. That's not what's happening for them. So, so something in the environment usually triggers the memory. It could be a sound, it could be a smell, it could be just one word, uh, it could be a feeling. Um, something triggers that memory and that person is instantly transported back to the moment of that trauma. And it's very, very difficult to, to piece apart, like what is actually happening right now and what are these remembered experiences and remembered sensory input from the past. And so, yeah, for that person, like inside their body, all of this complex stuff is happening. Their bodies are getting flooded with hormones. Their brains are functioning in a different way. And we know all this. There's science behind that shows that that's what's going on for this person internally. Holy crap. That's crazy. I mean, it really is just that um, that same lady that did the grief yoga episode brought up that book. I need to get it. She said it's very in-depth. <laughs> it's hard to get into, but super fascinating. Um, I was thinking of a question when you said that. Oh, so for somebody that has PTSD, or anxiety, do they do they slowly um, get rid of those memories and triggers or they just learn how to cope with them? Well, hopefully you learn how to cope with whatever disorder you may have. Hopefully you learn how to cope and you learn tools that help you. And, you know, that's one of the things they talk about in The Body Keeps the Score as well is like he, t- he dives into the research of like what is helpful, most helpful for people with these types of disorders and and how they work for people. But he also acknowledges that like every tool and every resource doesn't work the same way for everyone. And even time to time in my experience as a human being on this earth, 
for 47 years as someone who has lived with anxiety and, you know, depression for much of my life, you know, sometimes a tool or a resource that worked really well for me at one period of time in my life may later on not be the most effective one for me. So it might be something else. So it, it all comes back to managing and just trying to find ways. But one of the really powerful things from The Body Keeps the Score is it talks about how the body is changed by the trauma. Um, so if, if anxiety is rooted in trauma for any individual, their literally internal systems are, are changed. And the younger that you happen, it's really fascinating. Um, for example, when you experience trauma or abuse at a very young age, it actually changes how your internal organs develop. They, they look different and they develop differently. It changes the, the, and I mean, I hope I'm getting all this information right, but generally speaking, um, these things yeah. are true, like, but like the, the brain plasticity, um, develops your brain development happens faster when you are um, growing up in a traumatic environment. And so the way I understand it is like your brain is more pliable, like the actual brain tissue is more pliable when you're younger. Um, and that changes when you grow up in a traumatic environment. And so you your brain develops a lot more quickly than your peers who are not in that experience, right? So there's just a lot of things. Um, I do one one thing that I do remember reading in the body keeps the score is that girls who are sexually abused pre-puberty, on average, uh, tend to start puberty up to two years earlier than their peers. I think I have heard something along those lines. They start going through the the changes earlier in life. Yeah. So it it literally changes your body and how it works. Um, and that part never goes away, mm. right? So you learn, it's about management. But there was an interesting, have you heard of the ACE scoring, the adverse childhood experiences? No. So years ago, um, I believe that this research was, was originally funded by Kaiser and they were trying to understand why some groups of adults struggled with their weight and struggled to manage weight and lose weight. And so they did this study and they found something that they were not expecting. And they found that the commonality between the study participants who were unable to effectively manage their weight, what they had in common was not their habits. It was not their motivation. It was not any of those things. It was actually that these individuals shared common adverse childhood experiences. So they call them ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And so from this study, there were 10 most common adverse childhood experiences. And the higher the number of adverse childhood experiences that you had, the greater impact on your health and wellness. And so for example, if you have a score of four or higher, four or higher adverse childhood experiences, you are way more likely to struggle with your weight, you're more likely to develop heart disease, um, right? Like there's a bunch of health implications. And what they found is it has nothing to do with these people's lifestyles or, mm. you know, anything else that it's like the commonality is that they experience these adverse childhood experiences. Wow. That's so interesting. 
So you do the helpful with the meditation, the musical meditation. Is there anything else that you do to like um, give back to people that may have gone through the same things you went through as a child? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that question because I actually wrote a book. Um, I wrote a book, it's called Beautiful Badass, How to Believe in Yourself Against the Odds. And it shares a lot of my stories of, of the traumas that I grew up with and how I overcame them. And so it's it shares a lot of the tools that I've used. It shares a lot of the things that I've tried. And over and over again throughout the book, I really try to encourage people, you know, this book is not the definitive guide to any of this because you know what we are all unique individuals and there is no definitive guide sure and what works for me might be different than what works for you and so it just offers a bunch of ideas to try as well as permission if this one thing you're trying or if that thing you're trying isn't helpful for you you are not wrong it's not because you are flawed or there's something wrong with you it's just that this isn't the option or the tool for you and and keep trying keep looking for something else that might work for you so i've written this book beautiful badass how to believe in yourself against the odds and and that's one way as well as i am a professional speaker and i speak regularly on a variety of topics from mental health to imposter syndrome to burnout um, because I do want to share what I have learned and I want to encourage people who you don't they don't even have to have gone through what I went through. I mean, just human beings who are struggling for whatever reason they're struggling and to say, you know, you're you're not alone in this. You're OK. Um, you're OK as a person. Not, I mean, you might not be OK. You might be going through a crisis and in that moment you're not OK, but like you're OK as a person. Right. Of what life experiences you happen to be navigating at this moment. Hmm. That's awesome. Thanks for doing that. That uh, you've got to be helping a lot of people. Um, do have you gotten much feedback about your book? Like uh, reviews or people that have called you after reading it or? Yeah, yeah, I have. I there's, you know, I've got a bunch of, of reviews up on, on Amazon. And then, you know, of course, like yesterday, or the day before yesterday in my Facebook memories, somebody wrote a post about they were reading my book and they tagged me in it and that came up. And so, you know, people do give me feedback and they do leave reviews, but like many of us, you know, I am also someone I speak on imposter syndrome. I also experience imposter syndrome. And so, you know, oftentimes I hear this feedback in the moment, but then, you know, 30 minutes later, it's like gone from my brain, right? How many of us do that? Like when I talk about imposter syndrome, I talk about that, how easy it is to hold on to the negative feedback in the comments and to really sit with that and chew on it and carry it around for a while. And then someone gives us positive feedback or gives us compliments. And, you know, not all the time, but a lot of the time, how much do we show up in the space of like, oh, they're just saying not to be nice or, oh, I don't think that's really true, right? So the, the official sort of definition of imposter syndrome is the persistent fear of being found out as a fraud. And so that was something when I first had heard that I didn't resonate with it. I didn't think it applied to me because, you know, the itty bitty shitty committee in my head does not use the word fraud. <laughs> it uses it uses different words, um, but they sort of have the same impact. 
And it essentially means you don't belong here and you don't deserve this. So it, it most often relates to some kind of professional achievement or opportunity. When we talk about imposter syndrome, that's usually what it's referring to. And so it's kind of that feeling that like, maybe you got a job or a raise or an opportunity came your way and you just the whole time you're doing it, you're feeling like, oh my gosh, like, like I'm not the one who's supposed to be doing this. It should have been somebody else. And sooner or later, everyone's going to find out that basically I'm a fake, that, that like I don't actually belong here, that I haven't actually earned this. Um, but one of the underlying causes of imposter syndrome, so that's not what imposter syndrome is, it's not the definition of it, but it's a cause of imposter syndrome, is the inability to integrate our accomplishments. So we're out there, we're achieving things, we're making powerful contributions in the world, we're making a difference, we're doing good work, um, you know, we're showing up day to day, but we can't, we struggle to integrate that, we struggle to to claim that, to claim those achievements, to claim the progress that we're making, to claim everything that we've learned, like to, to say, yes, I am knowledgeable in this. I'm an expert in this. I actually am really good at this. We, it's difficult to own that and to show up in that space. And so that's one of the underlying causes of imposter syndrome. Mm. And, you know, you would never let anybody talk to your best friend or someone close to you the way that you talk to yourself, <laughs> you know, oh, like, oh, you don't deserve that. Like you would never let anybody say that to your best friend or whatever. Why, why do we talk to ourselves so terrible? I just don't understand where that stems from. Well, I, you know, I have some theories around that. If you want to, if you want to hear one of my theories. I do. And, you know, I believe, because this was true for me and so it may be true for some other people, but you know, growing up, I was talked to a lot about what it meant to be a moral and virtuous person. And, you know, in, in that idea of what it is to be a moral person, to be a good person, essentially, is like you, you're not arrogant and you don't think too highly of yourself. And, you know, you don't get too, I don't know if you ever heard the term growing up, don't get too big for your britches. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Don't, don't get too big for your britches. I don't know that that's something that people say anymore, but growing up, I, you know, that was a, a phrase that was used. Right. So it's kind of that idea of like, stay humble. Don't brag. Don't let anyone think that you think highly of yourself. And I think when that messaging really becomes very ingrained, very deeply ingrained, we start to feel like it's not okay. It's not okay to accept praise. Like if I think I'm really good at something, if I'm Hermione Granger, for example, from Harry Potter, yeah, and I'm showing up everyone else, people aren't going to like me. And I will essentially on some level not be a good person. If, if people think that I'm braggy or that I'm showing other people up or that, you know, yeah. I think so highly of myself, well, then I could be rejected by my social circle, by my peers. I might be rejected by my family. I might be told you're not actually a good person. You're a bad person, in fact, if you think too highly of yourself. And so then that goes, we go too far the other way. I mean, certainly true arrogance is not in and of itself, you know, it's not a positive quality, but going too far the opposite direction is also not a positive quality. But that's where a lot of us go is we're like, 
we become so afraid. You know, I be, became so afraid of being seen as that arrogant jerk, that person, that know-it-all, being seen as someone who thinks they're superior, that it was just like, oh, I'm going to reject anything positive about myself so that nobody could possibly think that about me. Hmm. That's a good theory. That makes sense. Where, where did this itty bitty shitty committee, did you make that up? <laughs> no, it's actually, I, I don't remember where I heard it, but it's something that I heard growing up. And I love, I love that. I am, I am going to be using that. I think that's hilarious. So is being a speaker, is that your full-time job? So I, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that I do full-time. So I am a career coach and a speaker and author, and um, that is what I do full-time. I also and the founder and CEO of an introvert-focused women's leadership community. So those are the two things that I do like full-time. Do you think you're an introvert? I am an introvert. I am a huge introvert. That blows my mind. If you can get in front of a bunch of people and speak, like I always thought of that as an extrovert thing. Oh, but here's the thing. So recently I attended the National Speakers Association conference and I met so many people who were like, yeah, there's a lot of speakers who are introverts, but here's the thing about introverts that I have found as being an introvert myself and then you know, running an organization that caters to introverts is it's, it can be difficult for introverts to interact socially and even professionally, but when you have a specific job at an event or at a party, like if you're the hostess or you're the person who's, you know, preparing and putting out the food or right. If you have a specific job, it alleviates some of that anxiety, that introverted anxiety that can come up or that social anxiety, because it just becomes about like, well, I'm, I'm just performing this job or performing this function. So, you know, being a professional speaker, I mean, it's not about me just interacting with people on the fly. First of all, I've gotten a chance to prepare. I've also been given permission. Like, I, I talk at my women's group, um, it's called She Goes High, so if I refer to it, that's what I'm talking about. So I talk about at She Goes High, how it can be difficult for many of us, just as women, you know, unrelated to introversion, it can be difficult for us as women to take up our space in the world because mm -hmm. we've received so much messaging throughout our life of like how we're supposed to show up and in which situations we're supposed to show up this way and like, don't be too big, but don't be too small, but don't be too sexy, but don't be too demure, but don't be, you know, so yeah. we get all these contrasting messages. And so I feel like, you know, we don't really know when it's safe and okay to take up our space. And here's the thing about being a speaker. I get to be on stage and I get to take up lots of space, but I've been specifically asked to be there and do that exact thing. Yeah. And like you said, you're prepared. So it's not like they're throwing you up there and saying, go do a stand-up comedy. <laughs> right. And, and I, so yeah, I've been given permission. I've been given permission to take up that space. But when I'm on stage, I don't think of it as being about me. I think of it as being of service to the audience. And so that I think is also where my introversion shows up for me as a speaker is because I'm not there for you all to think amazing things about me. I'm there to help the audience feel amazing about themselves. That is amazing. I love that. That is super cool. What a service. That's awesome. So where can people find you if they are interested in your book, where you, you know, where you, um, 
where you land? Where can they find you? Yeah, thank you for that question. So my website, you'll find everything that I links to everything that I'm doing and it's liveandlovework.com liveandlovework.com. So my business name is Live Love Work and the website is liveandlovework.com. And you can find my book, you can find my women's group, She Goes High, you can find more about me as a speaker. And, and that's really the best place to start. Well, this has been very eye-opening. You have given me a lot of little things along the way about different, different subjects that really, um, they'll stick with me because it's hard when you aren't somebody that struggles with those things um, to know what to do with somebody that is. But can I just say, Don, I want to reflect back for you how you're saying it's hard to understand how to support someone like that, but you're already doing it just even by asking the question. And so I love that you're showing up in these spaces and you're having these conversations and you're saying, how can I understand people who have a different life experience than me? How can I understand them better? How can I support them better? And that is absolutely what matters. It doesn't matter that you do it right all the time or that you understand all of the time. It matters that you show up and ask the question. Ah, you just made me feel so good. I want people to know, I want it to be out there. That's why I'm just trying to get as many people on and all the different topics so that people can just start learning why people are the way they are. And it's not always coming from a bad place. You know, people just, everybody's been through some stuff. I'm a huge believer that we are all doing the best we can with what we have. And I, and I feel that it's important to acknowledge that when we're talking about what it looks like for someone to do the best that they can, you know, we're also talking about what is their emotional intelligence? What is their intellectual intelligence? What is their life experience? Do they have any disabilities? Are they part of any marginalized communities? Do they have any intersectional identities? Which, by the way, I just want to say, as someone with multiple invisible intersectional identities, you can't always tell from looking at someone what their life experiences have been or what challenges that they've had. So, you know, just by showing up and asking questions and being curious and understanding and trusting that, you know, someone's best, you know, someone else's best might look very different from my best. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't trying or that they're not a good person or anything like that. I mean, they may be truly limited by circumstances beyond their control. Yeah, they're just not there yet. Mm -hmm. Wow. Krista, thank you so very much. Like, don't rule it out. I might have you on again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to come back. Like when you and I first chatted, I, I was like, this is going to be such a fun conversation. And these are my, my favorite types of podcasts to listen to and to be on where it really is just a back and forth and an exchange and sharing of ideas and new ways of thinking. And it's organic. Let's see what comes up, you know? Oh, I love that too. Just conversation. Just, just let's, let's see what pops up. That's my favorite. <laughs> Oh, well, I'll put all of your um, contact information in the show notes and stuff so everybody can learn where to find you. But again, thank you so very much. It's been, I can't believe it's been almost 50, 50 minutes <laughs> that flew, but it was great. And I learned so much from you. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. And I'm super excited that this worked out today. Yeah, me too. Thank you for your patience. And uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds great.
All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yo. Yo.